0: Okay, picture this, an AFL player scoops up the Sharon from the center ball up. They take a few bounces and they launch a massive bomb from inside the center square. The ball soars 40, 50, 60 meters through the big sticks. Now picture that exact same distance but imagine a water skier sailing 60 meters through the air pretty wild visual right hello i'm jamie mitchell and you're listening to the armchair fan podcast today i'm super pumped to chat to the global queen of water ski jumping jacinta carroll now that 60 meter distance i was referring to well Jacinta's the only female in the history of water skiing to jump that far we'll chat about that remarkable achievement her incredible streak of international victories and delve into another sport that she's pretty crash hot at. This will be a good one. Here's Jacinta on the Armchair Fan Podcast. Hello, Jacinta. Thanks for coming in.
1: No worries. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: So let's go back to 2016. I want you to put me behind the boat. On probably one of the biggest days of your career, the day that you jumped further than any female in the history of water skiing jumped, you're at Orlando. Set the scene from there.
1: Yeah, it was um, it was a pretty crazy day actually. I had called up the coach who owned the lake in Orlando a couple of months earlier and said, Kyle. I want to I do this. I want to go 60 metres. I want to be the first female to jump 60 metres. Let's do it. So we organised a Tuesday evening event, so not a typical Saturday, and um, I flew over from Australia, and, and Kyle has a, a special situation where he is actually from a water ski crash. He um, was paralyzed um, he's recovered function he's a walking miracle but as a result he can't do too much functional things in terms of lifting heavy equipment or or getting a tournament set up so that day I was ran off my feet like I was organizing the event I was swimming underwater to, to fix the course when it broke and all because we were just trying to make the event perfect for to have the opportunity that evening for me to go for this big jump and and then this massive storm hit and I was beside myself I I was just walking around upstairs in the judges tower just waiting for this storm to clear but at the same time the sun was setting and we were running out of sunlight so it was literally sunset by the time I'd worked all day, I was so high on coffee. Like I had had way too many coffees to try and get myself pumped up. And, um, the sun was setting and then, yeah, I I left the starting dock and I went out and it was three rounds. So in total nine jumps. Um, and the first three jumps didn't really go to plan, came in, reset myself half an hour later. And it was like, most competitions probably would have stopped by now. It was getting quite dark. And, and then I went out and I broke the world record by 10 centimetres. Came in, celebrated everyone happy. And they said, oh, okay, are you, are you going to go for that last round in another, you know, 15 minutes time? And I said, bloody oath, I am. And they, why? Like you've, you've just broken the world record by 10 centimetres. I was like, yes. But I literally organised this event. I flew from Australia for this event. So that jump where I broke it by 10 centimetres was under so much pressure. I was like, I have no pressure left. All I have is me and the lake and I can just go and ski. The pressure's gone. So then I went out and that's when I did the, the 60.3 metres was when I had no pressure because I'd already done what I wanted to accomplish was the world record and the 60 was, a, was an even bigger bonus. So
0: in water skiing, how significant is 60 metres? Like is this, um, you know, in cricket, a 50 batting average is really significant. Like uh, is this like a Neil Armstrong walk on the moon <laughs> type thing? I mean, how what I'm specifically trying to drum down, I mean, how much further ahead is that then the rest of the competition or what people would normally judge? Yeah.
1: So at the time when I went 60 metres, the, the second best ranked female in the world, her personal best was 55 metres. Um, and to put that into perspective, so that's a five metre difference. And in perspective, the male difference on the world ranking list that year, I think, was 30 centimetres. So it did definitely put me ahead leaps and bounds in front of the pack. But I don't think it's a Neil Armstrong <laughs> um, moment in time. Uh, Australia measures in most of the world measures in meters, but America, which is a huge hub of water skiing in the world, they're a little bit backwards still over there and they measure in feet. So the Neil Armstrong moment is 200 foot and 60.3, which I went, which was a pretty big moment for me, that's 198 feet. So two foot short of that Neil Armstrong moment to go 200 foot.
0: So 60.3 is the record. Yep. Your goal is to reach the 200 yep. feet mark, which is 60.96. Yep. I mean, realistically, to get that extra distance... Um, Is it mostly condition-based? Is it a bit of of wind? Is it, I don't know, not eating so much? Yeah. Can you you get that distance?
1: There's so many stars that need to align on that day. Um, You need a headwind to starters. Um, Our water skis are designed like aeroplane wings that we try to catch that lift force off the top of the ramp. So you need a perfect amount too much and it, it slows you down. Not enough and you don't have that lift force, so you need that perfect amount of headwind. You need the boat and a strong boat. You know, every engine... Came, comes out of the same factory, but they're different strengths. You know, you need the right fuel, you need the right boat, you need a really, really good boat driver, and then you need that perfect wind. So to fly to America for one day to try and break an event, it's tough. So you've got to, you've got to have some good karma up the back of your sleeve.
0: I want to expand on boats and are you borrowing boats? Are you getting drivers, all that sort of stuff a little later? But can you talk to me, and you did a little bit there about the mechanics of jumping and the takeoff and before, can you just run? through what happens in a, um, before a jump, as you hit the ramp in the air, landing, all that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. So we use um, our body as, as leverage. So every female jumps at the same boat speed, but our rope is actually fed through a mechanical switch to the engine. So the boat will hold a little bit slower than 54 kilometers an hour. And then when we pull tight on the rope, it activates the switch in the boat for it to accelerate up to its top speed. So getting that activation, At the right time to get that acceleration off the top of the ramp is crucial. If you get it too early, a lot of females aren't strong enough to physically hold that load and they'll lose body position and either put themselves at risk of crashing or they won't go very far because they're not technically in a strong position. So we kind of use ourselves as a pendulum swing. We'll maneuver and pull out to the left side of the boat. We'll then generate a swing and we'll whip ourselves out to the right side. And then ultimately we'll make one last turn towards the left side and swing ourselves all the way into the base of that jump ramp and into the air. So trying to get that pendulum swing that the boat's generating its maximum speed as you're you know, approaching the ramp, if not hitting the ramp. So then it's continuing to accelerate while you're in the air and pull you further down the lake. Um, so there's obviously a lot of mechanics in terms of how... Long Do you wait till you leave your approach to the ramp? Um, And that all starts, you know, 600 foot away from the ramp. You've got to be looking at wind.
0: Sorry, what's that in metres?
1: So, oh, God, I wouldn't even know. Uh,
0: 300?
1: So it'd be, yeah, 120, 180. So, because 200 foot is 60 metres, obviously. So, you know, you're making that judgment call so far away from the ramp. You're looking for gusts on the water. You're looking for wind. You're looking for anything, really. And then, okay, well, if I'm changing my turn or technique slightly where does that put my timing? Am I actually going to make the red part of the ramp and be safe or am I going to hit the white part and be off to hospital today?
0: Yeah. So I've seen a couple of videos where you have bailed on jumps and gone off. How often does that happen where you might crash or have to abort a jump?
1: Yeah. So we we have three attempts in a competition and you can abort any jump. You can let go of the handle and glide around the side of the jump and you still get to go for your next two in competition. Obviously, if you abort all three in competition, you score zero, but you don't have to take them. So some people only take one in competition. Some people take all three. Um, generally speaking, I'm pretty I usually take most of my jumps, even if I've won a competition. Um, Half the time I've flown halfway around the world for three jumps. I'm not going to turn around and go home after one. So I'll generally take all three. But there's often times in training where I'll go to the lake and not take any. The wind's not right. I'm, I'm fatigued. I'm not feeling good. The risk of going over the ramp when you're not in a very good position is huge.
0: So you mentioned there that mostly it might be I'm not feeling quite right. I'm not feeling the jump. Yep. Does fear ever creep in?
1: You know, I've just come off the back of a season where I haven't competed. I've come off the back of 12 months with COVID-19 and I'm not in that competition head frame. So I'll be the first to admit that right now I'm probably more fearful of what I call it big red, the jump ramp. I'm probably slightly more fearful of big red than I ever have been because I haven't been in that adrenaline seeking competition phase. And I know that, well, what's the risk of crashing in practice and not being able to go to work this afternoon or tomorrow um, just to get that good jump in practice. So, you know, it is a fearful sport, but unfortunately, if you let that take over then you're probably more at risk of
0: crashing. So does Big Red have different heights or is it all a set?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the women, we jump at a, a max height of around 178 centimetres. So that's 5 foot 6, they deem it. The men jump off 185 centimetres, so 6 foot. And the junior kids um, jump off 5 foot. So 5 foot, 5.5 for women, 6 foot for men.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about... Um about that process of weaving in and out for probably not the right terminology there um, and you are making a lot of calculations on the run how's the weather, what's the current doing all that sort of stuff Do you uh, are you ever able to you know relax um, try and I don't know meditate's not the word but is it mostly you're scouting the conditions or can you take a deep breath and just try and take yourself out of the moment or are you really just focused on what's going to happen next
1: obviously the best jumps can't Happen when you can take yourself out of that moment. So, when I did the world record in 2016, it was like a mirror. Like, you look at the photos and the videos at the lake, and the water was just smooth, which isn't ideal for world records. We want a headwind. But what it meant was I trusted that boat driver. The boat was the same, the water was the same. So, between each jump, it was my technique that needed to change and nothing else. Whereas yeah, usually you've got wind and you've got this. So um, in some situations you can zone out and really just let the comfort of your ability take over. But generally speaking on a professional circuit where we're competing on sites that aren't that great, but they're in a really good location for spectators and so forth, you've got to deal with rollers and current. And gosh, I remember in Mandarin Perth one time we had a dolphin in the course, like you're dodging these things to try and get the jump happening. So yeah, you're pretty focused at the time and uh, there, there's not often where you come in and you're like, oh, what just happened out there?
0: So, in terms of boats, Is it your boat? Are you going to Bill's Boats in Orlando? Um, Is it just a ram driver? Is it your set driver? How does all that work?
1: Yeah, so every event supplies the boat and the boat driver. So therefore, every competitor has the same boat and the boat driver. So then it is coming down to purely your technique and also a bit of luck of conditions um, because we don't, unlike, say, Winter Olympic snow jumping, they have meterage-added or minus based on the wind. Same with sprinting. We don't have that. Whatever the wind is, too bad. Um, But we do have the same boat driver and the same boat to have all things equal. So I'll pack up, leave Brisbane, and I'll get on a flight overseas with just my water skis. I won't take anything else. Um, And vice versa, when they come to compete in the World Cup in Australia, they come and ski behind our drivers with our boats.
0: Do you get an opportunity to brief the driver? I like this, I like that, go oh. fast go <laughs> slow there, or um, or this is my signal to go, I don't know, anything yeah, like that? Yeah, so
1: dem- the boat is GPS controlled, so just like your cruise control, so they're more steering it, and they're video tracked, so they have to remain on a certain path. So we can choose which path we want. There's three options, whether we want the boat to just go straight down between the two boys or whether they want to sit slightly left or slightly right. Um, But otherwise, the speed's controlled by me activating it behind the boat um, and it's maintained by GPS. So they're just steering. There is a few different settings that the boat can play around with. And 90% of the time, you're rocking up to a World Cup event with really high class international drivers and they know your settings or they know how to change the settings based on the environment. Um, Domestically, sometimes I do provide, listen, this is how I train. This is my settings in training. Do you mind replicating that? Um, Simply because they might not have had as much experience on the international scene. Um, But yeah, more so I've mainly trained behind the drivers that I'm getting in Australia.
0: This is getting way in the weeds here. (laughs) So different boats, different brands. Yeah. You talked about fuel's got to be right. Like, is there a difference between, I'm just going to use a car reference, right? A Toyota, it takes off a little bit quicker. Yeah. There's a bit of a lag with the BMW. With the BMW, I've got to change the way I approach the ramp. Yeah, you know, hundred percent,
1: hundred percent. So each boat obviously has their own horsepower depending on the engine size. They've got their own torque ratios. They've got their own propellers of different shapes and different sizes as well. So there's definitely a different force output, and to what timing and point you get that force output. Um, so every manufacturer, there's three main ones we jump in worldwide: um, Nautique. Probably toes the most events worldwide. I'm fortunate enough to be sponsored by them, so I train behind a Nautique. Um, but usually, yeah, we do have Mastercraft in Malibu and, and the wake sizes as well because of the hull shape, you'll get different weight. Sizes, Therefore, when you're travelling towards the ramp, you'll get more airtime or less airtime. So it is definitely different and it's the same as, you know, jumping in a BMW versus an Audi or racing around Bathurst in a Ford versus a versus a Holden. Um, but that's the ability of the best skiers, I guess, to not let that impact them and be able to still perform to their utmost best no matter what brand they're behind.
0: So is jumping and water skiing like long jump? It is solely distance?
1: 100%. Nothing to so the style. So you can look air out of control. You can be flying through the air with your hands everywhere and it will probably impact your distance. But ultimately where you land is where you land and you have no extra points added or minus because of technique. So you could look like the worst jumper in the world, but if your measurement comes back as 60.4, well then you've won.
0: So there's tricks, there's slalom as well. Uh, you do dabble in slalom. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So I slalom and trick, um, both for the Australian team. I don't do it on the international circuit of like professional events. So I'll compete at world championships in it. So at the last worlds, I actually made the trick final and came Fourth in overall, which is all three events combined. Um, but when I'm heading off overseas by myself, not for a world championships, I'll just jump.
0: Before we delve in a little bit more about your career, at what point do you realise I'm really good at like going behind a speedboat and jumping really far? Like, when does that come into it?
1: Um, I don't know. Like, I wasn't that great as a junior. So I just have this. Ridiculous work capacity, and honestly, I'm not the no, I'm not the most talented. And you look at my ta- my technique, and there's oh, it's definitely been ripped to shred by some professionals in the past. Like it's it's not the most technique, but I just don't give up, and I just work really hard. And I think that's what got got me to where I am today, that I have a few things in life that really motivate me. And I firmly believe that I work the hardest and therefore the results show for themselves.
0: Can you expand on that working harder? So um, train more, spend more time debriefing. I mean, are there any tangibles that you can put your finger on it that you do over the competition?
1: Yeah. So even from a young age, I was really fortunate growing up in um, Geelong, Victoria, that they had a regional sport program. So it was basically a replication of, yeah, Victorian Institute of Sport or Queensland Academy of Sport, but on a regional level. So we had access to gym. We had access to nutritionists. We had meetings with psychologists and people to help us goal set. So from the age of 14, I learned to be an elite athlete. I wasn't getting thrust into that limelight and and learning uh, of those attributes to be an elite athlete when I was 20. Um, So I learned at a very young age of what it was like to, to live as an elite athlete. So for example, like between the, I didn't have a sip of alcohol until the age of 24, not one sip because every day I would be doing something to better myself as an athlete and bettering myself as an athlete wasn't going out with friends partying. So it takes a lot of sacrifice and I I had to sacrifice a lot to get to where I was. Um, My gym ability and strength in the gym um, is definitely also a huge strength of mine. Um, And it's probably one thing that I've noticed it the other female competitors don't do as much of. And looking back, I would probably say, you know, we all train as hard when we're on the water, but what are we doing off the water? And I'm not going to the movies. God, I can't remember the last time I watched a movie because I don't have that much time in my life. Like, I'll go to the gym, um, you know, and and I'll do those things to better my on-water performance rather than just training more on the water.
0: So I'm curious to delve into the water skiing circuit, both here in Australia yep. but also internationally. So how, much, how often are you on the water training? and competing. And I imagine to get a boat out and skis and all that sort of stuff. It's not like running around an oval, you know, it's a lot of work, time involved, um, money. So how often do you actually train on the water?
1: Um, Imagine
0: normal times because everything's upside down.
1: Yeah. So um, normally I would be about, what are we now, end of April, I'd be two weeks out from getting on a plane to go to America normally. So I would be training hopefully four days a week on the water, um, four days a week off the water in the gym. So four gym sessions plus four water sessions. Um, At the moment, because I'm not leaving in two weeks, I'm still attempting to do minimum three, but it's posing difficulties. Obviously, the season's ended in Australia. It's getting colder. So I want to train. But my boat crew, my boat driver, the other people who come skiing with me—they're not so keen to get out on the water at the moment. So there's a really tough battle between me trying to stay calm in my head and know that what I'm doing off the water is still contributing and helping me when I do get on the water, and focusing on that component at the moment when I can't control how much I can be on the water. But yeah, you're right. You need a you need a hundred fifty thousand dollar boat. You need a boat driver. You need an observer. You need all of these things to go train. I can't just pick up my sneakers and go train.
0: So where do you train? Is that...
1: Sunshine Coast.
0: coast so I mean, even that, the back and forth driving.
1: Yeah. So like I'll say, for example, on a Tuesday, I'll get up at 4.45 in the morning. I'll leave home at 5. I'll be at the sunny coast by 6.30. The boat will be in the water. I'll be warmed up by 7. I'll train for an hour. I'll pack it up. I'll drive back straight to work, start work at anywhere between 10, 10.30, 11 a.m. and work until 7.30 that night get home at eight, wake up the next morning at 4.45 and go to gym.
0: Dedication, eh? (laughs) So you mentioned Seasons 2. Um, I'm assuming Australian season in the summer and then Europe and yeah. America is rock and rolling in our winter. Is that is that roughly yeah. what the is? Yeah, so it usually
1: like? kind of goes America in like May, June, and then a bit of Europe through July, August, and then potentially back to America in September, October, generally speaking. We have one event in Australia that's, and sometimes one in New Zealand that's in March. So that's a start of the season for all the internationals. And usually the start of my season as well, I don't often do much of the domestic tour because I'm trying to save my body for our winter, which is the Northern Hemisphere summer.
0: Where are some of the places you've really loved to compete? So I know you've spent a lot of time in the US. Um, Anything particular that comes to mind in terms of, you know, bucket list?
1: Yeah, I, um, I love going to Russia. And if you had have asked me this when I was Twenty twenty one on the tour. I had some like frightful experiences in Russia, and I wouldn't have said that that would have been my favourite place to go. But it's um, a pretty amazing. We compete in Moscow when we're there, and it's a pretty amazing city, architecturally especially, to, to go and view and go and see. And they just, um, you know, the organisers there are great and really wanting to give back to the sport and and not asking for much in return. So I've always enjoyed going there. Um, and then. Some of our world championships in in Paris, right on the edge of the city, that was pretty pretty phenomenal as well.
0: Be gorgeous. Moomba Masters as well.
1: Oh, yeah. So they're obviously internationally favourites, but um, ultimate favourite is at home in Melbourne, you know, biggest crowd of the year by far. And I'm from Geelong. So I deem, you know, Melbourne, Geelong, same, same hometown. So it's the only time that my family can come and view me and watch me compete. So um, that's the, the biggest thrill in our sport. I think, is jumping under the fireworks at night on moonbath.
0: Really sweet, eh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Some of the videos are terrific too. Um, Now, look, I did mention it in the intro, and it does sound a little bit, um, you know, a bit of a hyperbole, but the global queen of water ski jumping, I'm not exaggerating, Um, you've had a significant streak of international titles. I think we counted 39. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So 39 in a row. So the last time I didn't win gold, I won silver at the Moomba Masters actually in March 13th, 2012.
0: Do you ever take stock that you are the best in the world? Uh, I mean, it's a pretty significant achievement to be the the best in the sport anywhere.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Like I, I... It either hasn't sunk in or probably because I don't, I'm not invested. No, no, I'm invested. I'm not in the limelight of the sport 24-7. So for me, I don't live in Florida where 90% of the competitors live because they can train 12 months of the year. I, and that's where all the boat manufacturers and kind of sponsorship comes from. So because I don't thrust myself into that world and I'm not around water skiers 24-7, I don't think of that. Like I go for my training session on the sunny coast by myself and I come back to Work and when I walk in the door at work, I'm just just in a carroll physiotherapist. I'm not just in a Carol the world champion or the world record holder. I'm not somebody who anybody knows. I'm just doing my job. Um, so I guess that, in a way, has probably made me not think of myself like that. If that makes sense. Has it
0: ever been an option to perhaps base yourself in the US?
1: It has, and I've said no multiple times. I, um, unfortunately water skiing is not a sport you do to make money. Not at all. And yes, we can win prize money, but at the end of the day, by the time you pay for your expenses, um, you're not making much in return. So I really wanted to push for a career outside of skiing um, because I couldn't sustain just competing. So um, unfortunately, it's probably the the one bad aspect about water skiing is I personally deem it as a a bit of a white elitist sport. You know, everybody who's in it, like you've got to have a $155,000 boat just to start in the sport. So I, um, there is a lot of that kind of money around and I wasn't one of those people. Um, so I knew I had to have a job and had to educate myself to be able to earn money to then and pay for myself to stay on the
0: tour. I know you've been a scholarship recipient here at UQ and we'll talk a bit more about your study later on. Um, Yeah. Have there been times and that scholarship would have helped, you know, support you financially, but have there been times in your career where perhaps financially it just wasn't feasible that you had to decide against going to one event or the other? Does that happen often?
1: Um, Definitely. Like the first year I made it onto the pro tour, I got a uh, invitation because I won the Moomba Masters in 2011. So then I got invited to, um, the US Masters. So I used the prize money from Moomba to pay for the the trip to US. And I honestly remember being in China that year and I was 18, five months out of high school. And I literally had to podium to be able to fly home. Like if I didn't podium, I couldn't afford my flight to the next event. And I knew in the back of my head, like my parents are are lovely and would always be there and step in if they had to, but I didn't want to have to call them. Up in the middle of the night and say, Hey, mom, I came last and I've got no money and I'm stuck in Lin China. <laughs>
0: can you um, send me some Western news? Yeah,
1: can you send me some money to get home? Um, so that in itself was a huge motivator. Like I was going paycheck to paycheck podium to podium just to afford to finish the tour for the year. So that in itself is it was a huge motivator to you have to rock up and, and do well. You can't bomb out. You've got no choice. That's
0: intense. Among all the records, all the wins, um, are there any particular that stand out as um, I'm really proud of that moment?
1: The My first ever win by far was probably even better than any of my world records. Um, I was... In juniors. So I competed in the juniors at Moomba Masters on the Wednesday, Thursday, and then um, I was ranked 20th in the world in seniors, but I was given a opportunity to ski seniors basically because I was an Aussie and it was an Australian-run international event. And um, my coach six weeks prior had been given terrible news that he had melanoma cancer, and that would given him six weeks to live. So technically that week was meant to be his final. Um, and he was getting treatment at the Peter McCallum Cancer Clinic up the road in Melbourne. So he was pumped up with about eight litres of blood, came down in a wheelchair and was there to watch me compete. And I did a personal best and of a lower ramp height. So I was still in the junior category. So I was on the lower ramp height and I jumped 53 metres. And then because I had to go first, cause I was in, on the lower ramp height, I had to sit there with Ray in his wheelchair and just wait and watch every other girl try and beat me. Um... And fortunately enough for me, somehow no one did. Um, So that was a moment that like, yeah, even above all the world records to be able to do that for him for the last time that he's ever going to see me ski um, was a moment that like I can walk through it in my head every day and remember it because it was, yeah, the most significant thing that I'll ever achieve in my sport, I think.
0: That's a beautiful story. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Um, I do want to touch on, before we talk a bit more about the last year and how things are looking um, in 2021, but you've been captain of the Australian water ski team since 2015, a significant um, role um, and an amazing achievement to not only represent your country but be selected to, to be the captain. How important a role is that for
1: Yeah, it's awesome. Like we – the depth in Australia – Goes through ebbs and flows. And at the moment, I feel like we've got a really good crop of um, you know, youth coming through uh, and people that are really showing signs and, and some really good talent. And it's just great. Like, I'm such an Aussie that I just love, you know, cheering Aussie, 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 Oi, Oi, Oi. Like, people go to worlds and we always stand out as the ones with the best uniform and, you know, watching each other compete. And I I just love seeing everybody else be able to pull on the Australian Blazer for the first time and know that everything they've ever Dreamed for of, work for, to be able to put that blazer on and say I'm in the Australian team that they've they've been able to achieve. So um, it, it's a pretty you know uh, amazing opportunity to help those athletes um, and, and be alongside them, win, loss, whatever happens. Like um, being able to be there for a supporter, I wouldn't take that role for granted.
0: We did last year, but we saw a lot of it um, via. Instagram and sending seemed to be a lot of backyard training and getting through uh, lockdown months. But how, how did it hit you when you couldn't compete and uh, perhaps couldn't train as well? Was it difficult for you to navigate?
1: Yeah, it was obviously everybody, not just athletes, had a very strange and interrupted year. Um, I think... <sighs> I was somewhat okay last year because majority of the events got cancelled. So only one event went ahead. Um, It had money in it, but it didn't have any world ranking points in it. Okay. But this year, this is going to be the stick. Like this is going to be the kick in the guts because as an Australian who, you know, can't leave the country currently um, because of border restrictions, other countries are opening up, other countries are traveling or, or getting exemptions. So having to sit back and watch others win something that you have won for the last eight years and you have, you know, been the top of for the last eight years and having to sit back and go, if I was there, what have I won? Is my technique good enough right now? Am I second guessing what I'm doing in training? So without that competition edge, get on the water and compete. It's really difficult training space so yeah it was it was tough last year but I think it's going to be even tougher in 2021.
0: So a good start to the year though uh, national champion in the open women's jump congratulations. Thank you. And we're talking before we recorded that um, it looks like you've got the green light to head overseas now.
1: Yeah. So like I just mentioned with borders restrictions, I actually, 48 hours ago, heard back from the Department of Home Affairs that I have been given an exemption based on a FIFO worker, fly in, fly out worker, to be able to leave. Um, I basically did that as as a test run to see if I could leave in May for the US Masters, which is Apart from World Champions, probably one of the most biggest events for the year. Um, Unfortunately, you know it's all well and good to get the exemption until you calculate how much flights are going to cost and how much quarantine is going to cost, your travel insurance at a premium that's not going to cover COVID. Um, and yeah, it's just physically impossible for me to go. It's upwards of $20,000. So ultimately now it's head down, bum up and try and train and keep myself motivated and in that game zone and, and headspace to be able to hopefully save enough money to then leave in October because we have the world Championship in October. In Florida? Yeah, yeah. So they're in Florida on the lake for which I've tied the world record three times.
0: Oh, happy hunting Uh So not to mention all the border challenges. Uh, it sounds like a journey you're going to have to fund yourself as well. Uh, can you talk me through the stress of making those big decisions to...
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So unfortunately, um, the Australian Water Ski Federation is not in a position to send a team in 2021 because of the restrictions from the Department of Home Affairs and their insurance companies. They've decided not to select a team. So because I'm ranked number one, I can still attend. Um, I can be nominated by the International Federation themselves rather than needing Australia to nominate me. I can still attend if I raise the money. So basically, yeah, it's, it's looking like it'll be 20 grand just to cover costs. That's not including obviously your your time off work and so forth. That's just the expenses to actually go. So I'll be, uh, working hard already working seven days a week, but somehow I'll probably try and squeeze some more hours in and then, um, turn to look for some sponsors and so forth to see if I can get any assistance to, uh, help me on that journey. There's been, um, no water ski athletes ever won five world championships in a row. So I've won four and this would be the fifth.
0: So to that point, I was going to ask, are you setting goals? Being there might be some uncertainty over where you go, but is that still burning hard that you really want to achieve that?
1: Yeah. And I think the, um, the, the, the knowledge that I jump really good there. The knowledge that I've equaled the world record there, um, the knowledge that if you were to break a world record at a world championships, it's automatically approved. Um, that's my burning drive. I would, I could think of nothing better than standing on that podium with an Aussie mask on, <laughs> uh, knowing that I've just broken that 200 foot. Like, that would be all stars aligned. That would be all ul- ultimate. I've got... I'm I've got nothing left. That's everything
0: I've got. I've <laughs> been retirement moment. Yeah. By it, like. it, it
1: could quite possibly be, but um, we'll see what happens.
0: Really good at water skiing, really good at weightlifting, it turns out as well. <laughs> so it sounds like it has always been a part of your training regime anyway, but you also compete at a really high level. So how did you get into that competitive weightlifting?
1: Yeah, I um, when I was at the Victorian Institute of Sport, they were lovely enough to actually give me a scholarship for a non-Olympic sport. Whoa, I know, right? Lo- look out. Um, so they were fantastic. When I moved to Queensland, they were letting me train at the QAS, but unfortunately, they don't uh, give scholarships to non-Olympic sports. And they were trying to convince me to give a crack and talent transfer into an Olympic sport um, after, yeah, they saw my squat one day and really were pushing me for some winter Olympic sports, but also cycling. Um, but I really wasn't quite ready to, to quit my water skiing. So they offered weightlifting and they said, listen, we've got, you know, an athlete that's training here, Damon Kelly for like Olympian, one goal to come off games. You know, he's willing to take you on and coach you um, and he's going to let you water skate so I really didn't think I was going to lose anything. I'd just come back from world champs in um, Mexico and moved to Queensland. And I was dwindling a bit with my motivation. I had one worlds by three metres, four metres, I think. I didn't really have someone on my heels clipping to keep pushing me in the gym. I was getting a bit bored, like, oh yeah, I'm going through the motions, but no other girl's going through the motions kind of thing. So weightlifting provided a really good incentive to give me a reason to continue to push myself in the gym.
0: Did it also help fill the void? You mentioned um, the challenges you have. You want to water ski, you're ready, but we're out of season and no one else wants to do it. So does weightlifting kind of find that
1: spot? 100% because if I'm not water skiing, then I'm in the gym. So I don't think that I'm not water skiing, you know what I mean? Like if I was sitting at home going, great don't have a training crew today. So everybody else worldwide is doing something to improve themselves and better themselves. And I'm just sitting here. I'm not. I'm in the gym going, I'm becoming fitter, stronger, more explosive. And that will transfer to my explosive energy on the jump ramp.
0: What's Damon Kelly like to train with? So, yeah, Australian, great in weightlifting.
1: Yeah, he, he's amazing. He's such a gentle giant. Like, you see him walking down the street and you'd probably run for the hills. Um, but he is the softest gentle giant and and really good at being able to, you know, allow me to push – when I want to push and then allowing me to pull back. Obviously, I've got the two sports to think about and I can't go 100% 24-7 with both of them. So he's really flexible in allowing me to know my body and know when to push and when I can pull back.
0: Yeah, so what's the balance there? So water skiing, obviously, um, number one priority, but how close is weightlifting behind?
1: Oh, Jamie, if you had asked me that probably 12 months ago, I would have said I am, you know, still 100% my goal is water water skiing. But I would have said that weightlifting was creeping up and I was, you know, really enjoying it and wanted to push for Birmingham, Commonwealth Games. But in the last 12 months, I've really had to reevaluate where I dedicate my time and energy. You know, I work nearly... 50 hour weeks. I then drive to the Sunshine Coast four days a week for water ski training. I then at the time was waking up at 4.30 every morning to go and train in the gym. Like I was breaking down both physically and and mentally. Like I was away from the house from 4.30 till 8pm at night. Um, So I really had to make that judgment call of was pushing so hard in weightlifting no longer benefiting my skiing? You know, I can probably maintain my strength at 85% and that's still going to be really beneficial for my water skiing, but pushing to those top lifts, was it risking myself with further injury? And therefore, if I was to sustain a, sustain a serious injury, water skiing, like from, from weightlifting that meant I couldn't water skiing, could I ever forgive myself? And the answer was no. If I got injured weightlifting and couldn't water skiing, I would never forgive myself.
0: I wanted to touch on physio studies, which you will, but has your studies really helped you learn your body better than ever before in terms of like prep and recovery?
1: Yeah, I guess it's a catch 22, right? I know a lot about recovery, a lot about performance, a lot about my body. So that's really good to to build me up. But it's also, you know, sometimes you second guess it, you're like, oh, is that an injury? Or am I just feeling pain? Because I know that that should have caused an injury. You know what I mean? Um, So sometimes it is good to just lie on the physio bed and have my my boss treat me and me pretend dumb and just go, okay, what do you think's going on? How long do you think I should be out? Because if I'm in control of everything, I'll just
0: push through. Come back too early, not Yeah, as much. so
1: sometimes it's really good to go, I'm going to step back and I'm going to make you make the calls on this one um, because I do know too much about my own body.
0: So a proud Victorian. You studied prior to landing at the University of Queensland at Victoria University and then here at UQ uh, studied a Master of Physiotherapy Studies um, degree and now tackling a Master of Sports Physiotherapy. Um, should also mention you're a UQ Sports Achievement Scholarship recipient here and have been for a few years as well. It seems like, uh, university study seems to complement you despite having a really hectic lifestyle. What do you like so much about tertiary study?
1: Oh, I just find like I'm, I'm a bit of a science nerd and science buff. Like, and that's the thing I like about physio is it's forever evolving and improving. Um, so you'll never stop learning. Um, and I'm always wanting, same in my sport. Like you're, you're wanting to find out how you can do things better. Um, and I personally believed that in all levels of um, undergraduate physiotherapy, there's so much to learn. You can't pack it into four years. Hence why I went on to do further studies because, you know, I expect as an athlete that my physio can provide the utmost import like, you know, best evidence-based practice, I want to be able to give that back to my athletes that I'm helping try and achieve their goals now.
0: Your work ethic is, um, you know, it's off the charts. I mean, the daily lifestyle you've talked about is incredible. But I guess for anyone listening who's going through the same uh, work, study, elite sport journey uh, that you are, how do you navigate those waters? Do you have any sort of helpful tips other than having such a passion for things? But have you got through it all uh, these years?
1: Yeah, like it's just getting your network support set up around you and being okay with relying on those people. You know, like my partner knows that during the week, he may not see me that much, <laughs> but I will always dedicate my weekends to give him time and and, and spend time with him. You know, my, my bosses are phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal with allowing me space when I need space or pushing me along when I need to push along. Um, people even here at the university, people like Emily Burrows and Emily Bates are in charge of the UQ sport program. Like, Just uh, simple things of them keeping in touch with me and um, offering, you know, this, how can we, how, what can we support you with, you know? And and the fact like the UQ scholarship, that, that funding is huge. That, that makes me go, okay, well, I can work two to three hours less a week, train a little bit more or give myself some me time because I've got that funding and support behind me. Or I don't have to study at 10 PM. I can take a few hours off work or, or training or so forth and study in the fresh of the day because I've got that funding and support behind me. So, you know, finding out what, Access and networks you can get around you and then um, being okay to rely on them.
0: Two UQ awards I just want to finish up with um, that I think we should pay particular credit to. So 2016, the first ever UQ Blue recipient in the sport of water skiing. So that's dating back to 1912, by the way. Um, we have had seven half blues awarded um between 74 and 92, but you're the very first one to receive that honour. Uh, but also in 2017, you were uh, voted UQ Sportswoman of the Year. Again, very first water skier to do that. Two amazing um, university sporting awards, and particularly with the history of them, dating back. How does that land with you?
1: Yeah, like I said, UQ's been a fabulous, fabulous support, and I remember actually going to apply for physio here, and, and people were like, oh, UQ's fancy school. School, like they're not going to let you do sport <laughs> like I remember it the comments and I a, anytime I hear that now I shut people down straight away and and I think it's been a phenomenal school that's really helped me in my sport and yeah like those awards like I didn't expect them and um it was it was a pretty amazing night being able to go you know and receive those awards and basically I uh, I need to probably thank all of the you know the staff and support I had around me during my education for me to actually still achieve those results while studying like people like Sandy Brewer head of health at UQ, like wow, like she, I would set exams, you know, in in staff offices, and and they were just phenomenal with letting me be able to go in and out of overseas while still completing my studies. So, um, those awards are basically a reflection of the the great environment that UQ's been able to put together for elite athletes.
0: Psych like sport, isn't it? So many key people behind you. Um.
1: Yeah, yeah, like that. Those awards signal a reflection of everyone around me, not myself.
0: Uh, You've mentioned it a few times. It sounds like a great place to work. Very supportive and allowing you to live out your water skiing dream. But you are a physio for Queensland Sports Medicine Centre and you work with some pretty elite athletes as well. What's that journey been like transitioning to work?
1: Yeah, obviously um, it was a really you know, like I said, networking, relying on your network. Like my boss, he was actually my physio when I was a scholarship holder at the Queensland Academy of Sport. And if I wasn't relying on him, respecting him, working well with him, I would have never got the opportunity to work at QSMC. Like it's one of the most sought after physio clinics in the industry. And I was like, oh, I'm not sports masters accredited. I'm, I'll never get a job there. And he was like, no, we employ good people and we teach them to be a good physio. So, like that networking from my sport got me the role I, right, role I have today as a physio. And then through that, I'm now working with the Brisbane Lions and I work with the Olympic um, weightlifting coaches and team there and then doing dabbling in a bit of some supercar race driving stuff. So, you know, those opportunities, I'm just really happy that the reason why I got into physio was my physio helped me get back on the tour so early. I want to be able to be that for somebody else.
0: You're a very busy lady. Thanks so much for fitting <laughs> us in today. Um, how can people follow along your journey um, as you, you go along, especially a big 2021 coming up?
1: Yeah, so obviously, as you've heard, don't have much spare time in my life. Um, so Instagram would probably be my one social media avenue. Um, so, yeah, you can follow me on Insta- Instagram. It's just simply Carroll. Carol. Um, and hopefully I have some stories coming up in the future with uh, my plan of how I'm going to try and get overseas in October. Um, so stay tuned on that. But yeah, also, I'm pretty sure you guys here at UQ tend to repost or reshare some of my stuff. So I'm sure you won't forget my name when you see it there. But um, yeah, just really appreciate you guys, all the support you've given me so far. And hopefully we can uh, make a good 2021.
0: Yes. Bring home that fifth world title.
1: <laughs> I hope so.
0: Good on you. Thanks you, Tom.
1: <laughs> Thanks, guys.
0: So, so good to have Jacinta Carroll on the podcast. Just drop her name into YouTube and you'll be amazed by some of the water skiing videos you'll find. Thanks for the download, and if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the pod so you get every new episode as soon as it drops. More great guests coming up on the Armchair Fan Podcast.